Well, when I was in seminary, I developed a fascination and appreciation for the Puritans. And if I were to describe the Puritans, who unfortunately have been characterized in our culture, in our country, uh, as some uh, religious fanatics, judgmental, critical, probably known best for the Salem witch trials, um, that's, I think, uh, not the characteristic of the Puritans that we should remember. It's simply that they were theology on fire. Theology on fire. These men were passionate about the truth of God's Word, and they were very theological in the way they thought and the way they preached and the way they wrote, but at the same time, they were very practical, and they, they, they made things very real and down-to-earth, and oftentimes they would spend um, most of their sermon listing practical applications or specific applications for their congregations of how to apply a particular message. And so they would explain the text in the first part of the sermon, and then it would spend the rest of the sermon talking about the so what and how does this apply to you. And so they were theology on fire. And I was so enamored with these spiritual giants that when I was in seminary that I requested permission to do a directive study and just kind of make up my own course where I could just spend some time with these godly, faithful pastors who ministered in the Church of England uh, during the days of the Protestant Reformation. We're talking about 1550 to 1750. And uh, since then, I have acquired a large number of books written about the Puritans and books written by the Puritans, and it's become one of the most treasured sections in my library. And, And just the titles alone of their books communicate that these men lived with greater zeal and devotion than most of us do today. Let me just read for you some of the titles of their books. An Alarm to the Unconverted, Heaven Taken by Storm, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, The Almost Christian Discovered. One of the books on my shelf is titled, The Crook in the Lot, The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God Displayed in the Afflictions of Men. It has a picture of the Twin Towers, by the way. This was a a reprint um, that was uh, printed uh, at the time of 9-11 to provide some, a biblical perspective on that whole tragedy. Um, But this is a very interesting book. It was written by a Scottish Presbyterian minister, theologian named Thomas Boston, who faithfully shepherded a small rural church for about 25 years. And this dedicated pastor often was in poor health. His wife uh, suffered from chronic illness. But what was perhaps this godly couple's greatest trial was the death of their children. They lost six of their ten babies. Can you imagine that? have 10 children and lose over half of them. And rather than get bitter at God and and abandon his faith or drop out of the ministry, Boston turned to the Lord for help and comfort. And he found great solace in God's sovereignty. And The Crook in the Lot, this book that I just mentioned, was one of the last resources that Brooks published before he died. And it's really just a sermon. 
It's a classic sermon that he preached on the sovereignty of God based on the command and question in today's text, particularly verse 13, consider the work of God, there's the command, consider the work of God, and then the question for who is able to straighten what he has made crooked or what he has bent, made bent. And the main point of his sermon is, is summarized in this quote. And this is a quote directly from his sermon, The Crook in the Lot. He said this, quote, There is a certain train or course of events by the providence of God falling to every one of us during our life in this world. And that is our lot as being allotted to us by the sovereign God. By and by, there is some incident which alters that course grates us and pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. There's no perfection here, no lot out of heaven without a crook. This point is simple, that we all have our lot in life. That's an expression that we're used to using. We have our lot in life. That's their lot in life. That's my lot in life. We all have our lot in life, and there are some things in all of our lives problems and difficulties and ailments and limitations and frustrations that we wish were different or that we could change about our lives, but we can't. Philip Ryken, who has written an excellent commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, says it this way, we have something that we wish we did not have or we do not have something that we wish we did. That captures everyone in this room. All of us have something that we wish we did not have, or we do not have something that we wish we did. Sooner or later, there is something in life that we wish had a different shape to it. And then he asked this very probing question. And I want you to receive it as a question for your heart this morning. He says, what is the one thing that you would change in your life if you had the power to change it? That's very revealing, by the way, the answer to that question. If you could change one thing in your life, if you could snap your fingers and and say that would be different, that would be fixed, that would be straightened, that would be made right, what what would that be? Well, we know that there are some things in life that you can't change. Because they're exactly the way God ordained them to be. And he designed them to remain permanently bent or crooked. Now, if you're like me, I don't like the sound of that. Because if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm a perfectionist. I don't like bent, crooked stuff. In fact, I walked into my office today and one of the pictures on my wall was crooked. And so what do you think I did? I went over there and I straightened it up. Why? Because it just drives me crazy when things are crooked or not straight. I like neat straight lines. I tend to get irritated or depressed when things aren't perfect in my life. Maybe I'm not the only one that struggles with that. And one of the most convicting and comforting principles, I think, taught in this peculiar, often perplexing 
Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes is this. Life's not perfect. Get over it and enjoy it. Life's not perfect. So get over it and enjoy it. Now to some that may sound pessimistic or fatalistic, but that's realistic. That's a realistic view of life that's presented by Solomon in his personal journal that we know today as Ecclesiastes. And this book is the spirit-inspired memoirs of King Solomon's passionate, passionate search for true meaning and satisfaction in the things of this world. And if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that he found out the hard way that nothing in this world has, nothing this world has to offer can, can fill that God-shaped void in every person's heart except God himself. And apart from a relationship with God, life doesn't make any sense. And the maddening pursuit of worldly pleasures leaves a person feeling empty and, and unhappy, but... As we learn in this book, when a person looks beyond this world and realizes that there is a God to be honored and obeyed and that life is a gift from Him and the key to fully enjoying the life that God has given all of us is to honor and obey Him, then life becomes truly meaningful and fulfilling. That's the message, that's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. But for some... They read the book of Ecclesiastes and they go, man, this is really depressing. I don't like this book. I don't know what to do with this book. I don't know how to, how to understand this book. I don't know how to respond to this book. Well, granted, this would be a very depressing book were it not for the fact that Solomon shows us how to truly enjoy life in an imperfect world, a world that's not perfect. Turn back a, a few chapters to chapter 2, verse 24, and I want you to, I want you to see a, a stream of thought here, something that is really weaved, a theme really that is weaved throughout this entire book. And you tell me what it is when I'm, we're done reading all these passages. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Look at chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not even consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of of his heart. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 7. 
Go then, eat your bread and happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already proved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And then finally, chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. And so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Well, you could conclude from those verses that that Solomon was all about eating and drinking. Hey, go out and go out to eat a lot, right? And enjoy a, a nice meal and, 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 and enjoy a, a party with your friends. And, and, and well, really, those are all images that come down to enjoying your life. That's what he's saying, enjoy your life. And that culture that King Solomon lived in, that was a, a, a huge part of life's enjoyments, life's pleasures, what was eating and drinking and, 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 and it's enjoying, having an enjoyable time together. And so, lest, lest anyone classify his memoirs as the cynical ramblings of a confused, depressed skeptic, as some have concluded that's what Ecclesiastes is, Solomon is, Solomon is sure to emphasize that life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. In fact, the words for joy and gladness and pleasure and rejoice appear 17 times uh, in, this, in these 12 chapters. And so while, while it may sound like it's all about the frustration of life, it's really a celebration of life. I find this interesting that Ecclesiastes is traditionally read in Jewish synagogues during the annual Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, is a joyous occasion. It's a joyous celebration. And what that tells me is that the Jews never considered this a negative, pessimistic book, or they would never read it on such a a festive occasion. I mean, why would they say, hey, we're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and let's invite Debbie Downer, let's invite Solomon the Downer, the party pooper, right, to rain in our parade and, and, all get us dep- and get us all depressed. Oh, this was a celebration of life. In fact, one commentator describes Ecclesiastes as the Philippians of the Old Testament. You know what the theme of Philippians is? Joy. It's joy. That's what Philippians is all about, joy. And that's, believe it or not, what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Now, you wouldn't know that if you were just plowing through, as you plowed through the first six chapters, because Solomon was simply describing what life is like without God, or as he describes it as life under the what? Under the sun. And, and this is mentioned, uh, this phrase, uh, throughout the entire book. But notice in chapter 1, verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Verse 9, that which has been is what will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Verse 14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 11. 
Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was no profit under the sun. In, cha- in, in that same chapter, chapter 2, verses 17 to 22, it mentions that phrase, under the sun, in, in almost every one of those verses. Chapter 3, verse 16. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun... Chapter 4, verse 1, then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. Verse 3, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. There's more in, verse, in chapter 4. Uh, how about chapter 5, verse 13? There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. You've got verse 18 there of chapter 5. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun. And then you go to chapter 6. There is an evil which I've seen under the sun. And then fast forward to verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life. He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? And so, in the first part of the book, what he's doing is he's describing his futile, futile quest to find meaning and happiness in life apart from God, under the sun. In other words, we're forgetting about God. There is no God, right? Just life here on planet Earth. But then in the last part of these memoirs, he describes how he wised up and returned to the Lord. And and starting in chapter 7, his focus becomes less man-centered and more God-centered. And if you will, he begins to look above the sun. What, What is life like when you consider God? And one evidence of this shift is the frequent occurrence here of the words wise and wisdom, which appear almost 35 times in the latter half of this book. And chapter 7 opens up here with this series of proverbs that are often, that really offer a godly, a godly perspective on, on dealing with life. And Solomon was following up on the rhetorical question that he asked at the end of chapter 6. Chapter 6 the title in my Bible is The Futility of Life. It's really one of, the, one of the darkest, most depressing chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes and possibly the entire Bible. If you're depressed and going to the scriptures for encouragement, don't read Ecclesiastes chapter 6. It's not going to help. And, and one of the things that he addresses there is, is that, that there are things that disillusion people about life particularly the mysteries and the puzzles that seem to make no sense and seem to have no rhyme or reason. They have no solution. And when we face perplexing problems in our lives, it sometimes makes us wonder if life is even worth living. And so Solomon was trying to unravel some of the mysteries of life, and he listed a series of frustrations and and disappointments in chapter 6 that he he had experienced in his own life that left him questioning what life was all about. And he mentions particularly three frustrations here, and this is, uh, don't, don't get lost, I'm not preaching another sermon within a sermon here, but it sort of is. There's, there's three frustrations here in chapter 6 of life without God. In other words, if you don't know God, 
These three things will frustrate you throughout your entire life and make you wish you were dead or that you were never born to begin with. Without God, life's blessings cannot be enjoyed. That's verses 1 through 6. Without God, life's cravings cannot be satisfied. That's verses 7 and 9. And then thirdly, without God, life's questions cannot be answered. Verses 11 and 12. Notice he says in verse 11 here, chapter 6. And again, this is just setting the context for our text this morning. He says, For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, we have a limited ability to fathom the present and no ability to foresee the future. Which leaves us with a whole lot of unanswered questions about life and death. We ask ourselves, well, what good is my life accomplishing? Anyway, what's going to happen to me when my life is over? Why am I here in the first place? And where am I going to end up? Where am I going? And so when we look at life from a purely earthly perspective, under the sun, just a kind of a horizontal uh, perspective, it poses plenty of questions and provides no real answers. But when we wisely look at life above the sun and we realize that there's a God who has a perfect plan for your life, then you avoid becoming cynical or skeptical about life. And while your life will never be perfect... You can live with the confidence that God's plan for your life is perfect. Let me say that again. That while your life will never be perfect, you can live with the confidence that God's plan for your life is perfect. And in fact, God's perfect plan includes the imperfections in our lives that tend to frustrate us and depress us, and it's those very imperfections that God is using to perfect us. Are you confused yet? See, we think we know what's good for us. We even think we know what's best for us. But God knows better. And Solomon makes that point here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, and uh, you'll notice as we just breeze through these initial verses in chapter 7, that the, the words good and better occur in these verses more times than any other chapter in the Old Testament. Eight times, verse 1, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Verse 5, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Verse 8, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Verse 10, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Ultimately, the point of this section is to consider the fact that God doesn't just know what's better, but he knows what's best. 
And that's really the concluding thought here in verses 13 and 14, our text for this morning. He says, consider then the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has made crooked or what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So God knows not just what's better, but what's best. And he knows that it's often the bad things the hard things in our lives, which he describes in verses 1 through 11 or 1 through 12. Did, did you pick up on the fact that he was saying that the things that we normally think, well, I, I would rather go to a party, a feast, than a funeral. To me, that would be better. I, I would rather, it would be better to go to a feast than a funeral. And, and Solomon says, no, it would be better for you to go to a funeral than it would to go to, to go to a feast. See, what's happening here is he, he's helping us see that, that we consider the bad things or the hard things, right? It's a lot harder to go to a funeral than it is to go to a feast. And yet those are the things that are often the most beneficial and prove to be the most effective in helping us become who he wants us to be. And so Solomon challenges us here to consider how pain and adversity is better than peace and prosperity when it comes to perfecting us and making us more like Christ. We've already read here in verses 2 and 3 about it being better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, right? And if I said, hey, you got two options this afternoon. You can do, we got a feast going on over here, and we got a funeral going on over here. You pick. Where do you go? Where do you think the majority of people would go? Uh, I'm going to the feast. That sounds way more fun. I'll enjoy that a lot more than this difficult, hard, painful thing we call a funeral. And yet what, what, what the writer here of, of, of Ecclesiastes is saying is it's better to go to the funeral Because at a funeral, you have to stare death in the face and grapple with your mortality and eternal destiny, and you're going to be much better off leaving that funeral than you are leaving that feast. You learn a lot more from going to a funeral than you go to going to the fair, for example. And yet people prefer the fair because why? It numbs their minds, and drowns out the sound of the grass growing over their graves. That's why I like to go to the fair. Someone wrote this poem I thought was very profound. It goes like this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and narrow words said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. That's one of the paradoxes of life, that there's great joy in sorrow. Most of you are familiar with this little devotional book called The Value of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers, and the, the opening prayer, the introductory prayer, is simply called the Valley of Vision. If you've never read it, it's, it's really profound. This is a prayer written by some Puritan years ago. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision. 
By the way, what's the valley? He didn't say, you've brought me to the mountaintop. We usually think, hey, if I want to see things clearly, I want to go to the mountaintop. That's fun, right? We, we love those mountaintop experiences, but no, this whole thing is called the valley, the valley of vision. Man, and last time I was in a valley, man, you can't see anything. You're boxed in. You're surrounded. Listen to what he says. Thou has brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, and the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give, to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision." And then he says this, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. I think that's getting to the heart of what Solomon is challenging us to consider. Here in chapter 7, verse 13, he says, consider the work of who? God! Oh, that's so refreshing. (laughs) After six long chapters of no mention of God, if you will, and it's all about life on this earth, apart from a relationship with God, uh, there's no acknowledgement of God. He mentions God. This is the first time God's name is mentioned in this particular section. And, and what he's saying is one thing that a wise person does is considers God's sovereign control of all things. He says, for who is able to straighten what he has bent in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. In other words, you can't thwart or change God's will no matter how bad you want to or how hard you try. As someone said, God's decrees are immutable or unchangeable and not subject to human manipulation. And so God's sovereign ordering of our lives includes times of prosperity and times of adversity. God has seen fit to permit, to ordain times of both prosperity and adversity in our lives. Now strap your seatbelts on here for a second because this is hard for some people to come to grips with. But it's true And it's what's taught in Scripture that God is the author of both adversity and prosperity. Job knew this. Job 2, verse 10, in response to his wife when she said, well, why don't you just curse God and die after all these bad things happened to him? He said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In other words, they're both coming from the hand of God. Isaiah 45, verse 6 says, I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. 
Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? it is, not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And so we need to come to grips with the fact that God has ordained everything that happens in our lives. Some things that make us happy, praise God, and some things that make us sad. And I think that God expects us to thank Him for the good times and the good things that He ordains for our lives and to trust Him in the bad times and for the bad things that He ordains for our lives. And keep in mind, this is the whole idea, consider, consider, think. That's what we're doing this morning. We're thinking, we're considering how God works. And so we need to understand that God allows affliction in our lives because he knows that in times of prosperity, our tendency is to forget him. Or at least to forget how much we need him. And trials and and difficulties teach us to trust him and to obey him. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 67. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I mean, when everything was just going hunky-dory in my life, I strayed away from the Lord, but now I keep your word. Why? Because I was afflicted. He goes on to say, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It's a good thing when I go through difficult times, when I face hard things. Because then I learn your word. I learn how to put into practice the principles of Scripture. And so God mixes the good with the bad so we won't be able to find fault with him or, frankly, figure him out. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, just one chapter over, verse 7, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell him, tell him when it will happen? You have no clue what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow, or next month, or next year. Verse 17, And I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise should say, I know, he cannot discover. In other words, God is God, and I'm not. There is a God and you're not Him. And so we simply need to submit to God's sovereignty over our lives and enjoy the good days. And on the bad days, remember, consider that adversity has unpredictable and inscrutable purposes that are beyond our finite ability to understand. But we know that God is at work and we know He works all things together for what? For good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. One commentator said it this way, given our limited narrow vision of what life is, what business have we got complaining to God about how our life is run? Anyone ever complain about your life and how it's going and let God know that you don't think he's doing a very good job? Let us accept 
the reality that we aren't wise enough to know what is good for us. And then let us trust God to choose the elements we need. If prosperity is not always good, then it is equally true that adversity is not always bad. That's a profound statement. If prosperity is not always good, then it's equally true that adversity is not always bad. So suppose hard times do come. What then? Many good and even great things can come out of them. I know some of you have had to go through horrific circumstances and trials. Some of you are in the midst of horrific difficulties and trials. But those of you that have maybe been dealing with those things over time, those are the very things that God has used to get you to where you are today in your spiritual growth and maturity. And when you were in the midst of those, you wanted out of those. But now I guarantee there would be some that would confess this morning that, that you wouldn't change, change it for the world. You wouldn't, you wouldn't change the way it happened, the way, the way it went down. Because of the, the sweetness of the communion that you enjoy with God as a result of that painful trial. Derek Kidner, classic commentator of the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, said this, life has a way of clipping the wings of our self-sufficiency. Life has a way of clipping the wings of our self-sufficiency. We all tend to be self-sufficient, right? Think that we can live life on our own, in our own strength, with our own wisdom, and then life happens. (laughs) And guess what? It clips your wings and realizes, you know what? You're grounded, man. You, you, you can't even get off the ground. And it's only God who can cause you to fly like with wings of eagles, right? Life is full of unexpected things. So we might realize that we don't control the future. That we're not in charge of our lives. Man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. You ever made plans and said, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to go there, we're going to have this, we're... and then boom, everything changes? That was just God's way of reminding you that guess what? You're not in charge of your life, but he is. He's in control. And even though adversity can be painful, we need to trust God that he is in control. And he knows what he's doing and that he's acting in love towards you even though it might not feel like it. And be grateful. Turn back to Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 3, and and look at verse 22. Solomon says, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his what? Lot. That is his lot. And so here Solomon encourages us to find satisfaction in accepting what we can't change in our lives. I'll never forget reading through um, 
a little journal that Jeannie Hepner had kept uh, for her daughter, Kelly, to read at some point. And so she was keeping this journal and she was writing things, lessons learned and funny stories and memories. And, and uh, during the process of planning her funeral, Jeannie's funeral here recently, they gave me that book to look through. And one of the pages that caught my attention was lessons that I've learned in life. And one of the lessons that she bullet pointed was accept the things you cannot change. Accept the things you cannot change. Now that may sound like, well, you know, I've heard unbelievers say that. Well, if they have, that's what's called common grace. Because that's exactly what Ecclesiastes said. Is accept the things you can't change. And find joy and satisfaction in spite of those things, in the midst of those things. Enjoy your life. Be satisfied with what God has given you in life, both the good things and the bad things, rather than spending your life frustrated by what He hasn't given you. I mean, that alone should convict us, right? Instead of going through life, being embittered for what God hasn't provided you, How about just enjoying what he has provided you? And so I think, sadly, so many people waste their entire life wishing that they were someone else, that they had a different body, that they they had a different spouse, they were married to someone else, they had a different job, they worked somewhere else, they were living somewhere else, they don't like where they live, and, 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 and instead of just being satisfied with what God has sovereignly ordained for their life. And so we need to learn to enjoy God's gifts to us, knowing that God is in control, and by submitting to His sovereign plan for us, we can experience peace and rest. Bottom line, life's not perfect, so you might as well make the best of it. Life's not perfect, so might as well make the best of it. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Bill Barrick, has written a very helpful little commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says this, Why fret over our lack of control over the timing events, our failure to eradicate injustice, and our inability to avoid death? God has better things for us to do than to spend our time fretting over things that we cannot control. We are not to pour more effort into understanding our frustrating and uncontrollable circumstances. Nor ought we to spend our time comparing our lot in life with another's. We ought not to indulge in retaliation, resentment, bitterness, or disappear into a fantasy world. In other words, if I can't have what I want, I'm going to go find it somewhere else in some fantasy world. He says, don't do that. Reject these reactions to life's difficult circumstances and intrinsic injustices. Abandon self-pity and despair. Thank God that he uses such circumstances to humble you, to make you more dependent upon him, and to be thankful for what he has given you to enjoy. We began by talking about Thomas Boston and 
how I basically just ripped off his title for today's sermon. I just changed one word. Instead of the crook in the lot, it was the crook in our lot. And in that sermon, Boston concluded by listing some of the many reasons why God makes some things crooked. These are some biblical lessons that that he had confirmed, that had been confirmed through his own experience of, of grief and sorrow and pain and all the things he went through in his life. Lessons about the sovereign purposes of God that, that, that help in our suffering. In other words, why does God make some things crooked? Even when we prayed for them to be straight. Why do I have cancer when I prayed that I would be healed? Why? Why, God? Well, Boston suggests some things. Number one, the crooked things in life are a test to help us determine whether we really are trusting Christ for our salvation. He uses Job as an example, who was afflicted with many painful trials in order to prove the genuineness of his faith. Our own sufferings have the same purpose, he says. By the grace of God, they confirm that we are holding on to Christ, or perhaps they reveal exactly the opposite, that we've never fully trusted in Christ at all, but still need to trust Him for our salvation. In other words, sometimes God causes crooked things to happen or he leaves things bent in your life to to expose the fact you're not truly saved and to bring you to Christ. Number two, I love this, whatever crooks there are in our earthly lot, turn our hearts away from this vain world and teach us to look for happiness in the life to come. In other words, if this world was perfect, I don't think we'd be longing for a better place. But there is a better place, amen? And because we deal with crooked, bent things every day in our lives, it should remind us, it should prepare us for eternity. And when something in life seems crooked, remember that the day is coming when God will make it straight. He gives a third reason. The crooked things in life convict us of our sins. He says the reason that anything is crooked at all is because there's sin in the world, including our own sin. The Holy Spirit often uses the crooks in our lot to touch our conscience, reminding us of some particular sin that we need to confess. That's a good thing. In fact, Boston goes on, number four, he says the crooked things life may even be a corrective for sin. Maybe God's using it to discipline us or chastise us. Now, obviously, not every suffering that we face in life is the result of some sin in our lives, but we should also consider, is there any areas in my life that I can change and grow and be more pleasing to the Lord? And then I appreciate uh, Philip Ryken and the way he just concluded his thoughts on this text and how he ultimately points us back to the cross. Listen to this. I think this is beautiful. He says, the point of listing these possible reasons for our suffering is not to suggest that we can always figure out why God has put some particular crook in our lot. The point, rather, is that God knows why he has put it there. And when something in life seems crooked, we're usually very quick to tell him how to straighten it out. Instead, we should let God straighten us out. 
In his sovereignty over our suffering, God is hard at work to accomplish our real spiritual good, not just in one way, but in many ways. Therefore, we are called to trust in him, even for things that seem crooked. And whenever we are having trouble believing that God knows what he's doing, the first thing we should do is to consider the work of our Savior. He said, remember that our good shepherd once had a crook in his lot, a crook that came in the shape of a cross. In his prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his father if there was any way to make Calvary straight instead of crooked, but there was no other way. As Jesus considered the work of God, he could see that the only way to make atonement for his people's sins was to die in their place. And so Jesus suffered the crooked cross that it was his God-given lot to bear. And he trusted his father, waiting for him to straighten things out when the time was right by raising him from the dead on the third day. If God could straighten out something as crooked as the cross, then surely he can be trusted to do something with a crook in your lot. And then Reichen asked these rhetorical questions. Would you change your disability or disease? Would you change your job or your finances? Would you change your appearance or your abilities or your situation in life? Or would you trust God for all the crooked things in life and wait for him to make them straight just like Jesus did when he died for you on the cross? I trust your heart has been encouraged and and challenged even as mine has in meditating on this profound passage in Ecclesiastes. Father, we thank you for just the, these little verses in your word that seem so obscure and that could very easily be rushed over or even overlooked completely, and, and yet there's so much rich theology, truth, Lord, for life that we can apply today. And Lord, I know that, um, Lord, all of us have things in our lives that we wish were different, that we wish we could change. And I pray you'd teach us to trust you, that you know better than we do, and that you have the power to use those crooked things for good in our lives. And Lord, that you would also every time we are faced with one of the bent things or imperfect imperfections of our own lives, our families, our marriages, our homes, our cars, our, our, our workplaces, our communities, Lord, this planet, that it would just make us long for the perfect place that we have promised to us in Christ, and that is to live forever with you in heaven. And so, Lord, may we worship you now As we depart, and may this be truth that we can carry with us this week, Lord, as we deal with life, and I trust a manner that's pleasing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.